Hey everybody, I want to welcome you to Thrive Tonight. Uh, my name is Michael and I get to share a message with you this evening. Uh, today is May 7th, which means that we are seven weeks into being quarantined here in Washington State. And, uh, you know, regardless of whether there's a quarantine on or not, Thrive is still meeting. Um, if this is your first time joining us, uh, this is a multi-church young adult ministry that you've hopped on with. And uh, we gather from churches all over the area, from different backgrounds, different places, um, united by Christ. And uh, as just we start off tonight, I want to welcome anyone who's watching the premiere on YouTube. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, that there's a live chat feature on YouTube. And uh, if you are on YouTube right now, you should jump onto the chat and just uh, type in a quick hello to all your fellow Thrivers so that we know that you're watching. And uh, as the message goes on tonight, just know that uh, you can get your inner Pentecostal on, you know, so if there's a part of the message that really uh, stands out to you or really speaks to you, just jump on there and type an amen or throw up your favorite emoji or something. And uh, that'll be a fun way that we can all interact with each other tonight. What we're going to do this evening is launch into a, a new series. Um, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in the book of Psalms. And we're going to focus in this book on the theme of prayer. Now, here's, here's how this has come about. Um, you know, for me, I think over the last couple of weeks, uh, this whole time has been so unusual. It's been so unexpected. And um, I, I think what it's caused me to realize is that it's really, really easy to want to rest on your laurels. Um, it's really easy to want to just kind of lock into the routines that are most familiar. Uh, but sometimes I, I feel like it's a really good thing when God shakes things up a little bit and actually allows the routines that we're used to to get canceled. Uh, because what that means is that you have to go back to the source. Um, you, know, you, you have to go back to um, where, where the, the power came from in the first place. And, and spiritually, when it comes to um, walking with God, that's true too. And I think um, in the absence of many of the things that we normally would have counted on, like showing up at uh, church or coming to Thrive on a Thursday, um, well, the challenge that I think the Lord has in that is that we have to go back to the source, which is Him, um, and to really be sure that we're not just allowing our spiritual lives to run on fumes, but to reconnect um, to the power source, which is Jesus. And, and prayer is the foundation of where that begins. Um, for, for me, the last couple of weeks um, have really um, seen prayer become a pretty important uh, focus for me. And, and I found myself just asking God, God, would you teach me how to pray? Um, would you help me realize what, what prayer is really all about? And so that has led us to a series that we're starting tonight on the book of Psalms. And I want to share a little bit of what the vision for the series is. The vision for this series is that this would be a series where God becomes real. Why do I say this? The reason I say this is because it's in prayer where God becomes real. Prayer is where God becomes real. Prayer is more than just asking God for things. It's more than simply a way to start a sermon or to close a small group. That kind of prayer you could maybe define as ritual prayer. The kind of prayer that you do just to tick off a box or that just you know, helps you feel like you're getting your Christian brownie points. But there's another kind of prayer, and that's what I would call relational prayer. Ritual prayer versus relational prayer. And this is a kind of prayer that isn't just about getting things from God, but it's about getting God. I'm talking about a kind of prayer that's, that creates a relational space between you and God where God actually becomes real to you, where you actually get to know him more and in a deeper way than maybe you've ever experienced before. 
I don't want for my own life to be wasted by just a bunch of dry religious rituals. And I think prayer is easily one of the very first things that can fall into that trap. But man, I mean, if it's really true that God has come down into this world, if it really is true that he's taken on humanity, if he's really laid down his life on the cross, picked up his life again in the resurrection, and, and has done all of those things so that we might have an actual relationship with the God of the universe who made us, then wouldn't that mean that there's a whole lot more to knowing him than just, just, just asking him for stuff, for, for treating him as a vending machine? Wouldn't prayer be a whole lot more exciting than just a ritual? I so hope that that's what this series can be about. And that, that every single one of us could come out the other side not only of this quarantine, but of this series, and be able to say that prayer has taken on a whole new meaning for us. What would it look like if prayer became a place of experiencing awe and intimacy with God? What if prayer became a place of experiencing awe and intimacy with God? That's what my hope is for this series. And, and so to that end, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Psalms because... The Psalms are the prayer book for the whole Bible. And for thousands of years, God's people have turned to the book of Psalms to learn how to pray. And the reason for that is that the Psalms contain every possible kind of prayer. They touch just about every kind of human emotion. And they contain some of the most breathtaking descriptions of God that can serve as fuel for prayer like little else can. And so here's what we're going to do. Each week, we're going to look at a different psalm. And see what it has to teach us about experiencing awe and intimacy with God in prayer. In addition to that, I would invite you to jump onto the Thrive Podcast. If you've never been on this before, Thrive recently started a podcast. We have used it to upload some of our messages. But for the next couple of weeks, what I'm hoping to do, maybe not on an everyday basis, but certainly a couple of times a week, we're going to have on that podcast a couple of short five to ten minute uh, little devo- sets of devotional thoughts on various psalms that may be different than the ones that we're actually looking at here on Thursday nights. But we're going to be going through the psalms. And I want to I encourage you, jump on the podcast in the morning. Take just a quick listen to, to, to a couple of reflections on one of the psalms that, that is highlighted for that particular day. And start to use the psalms to help shape your own prayer life. Consider taking a couple minutes each morning and praying through a particular psalm. And I want to explain a little bit more of, of how you can do that as we go on through this message. So our message tonight, to, to introduce us to the book of Psalms, um, is going to take us to Psalm 73. Um, there are lots of different kinds of psalms and, and lots of different kinds of prayers in the psalms. There are prayers of petition, of asking God for things. There are prayers of adoration, uh, uh, prayers of worshiping God, uh, prayers of lament, uh, weeping before God. The thing that all of those kinds of prayers have in common, though, is that they're more than just rituals, they're encounters. They're encounters with God, where he becomes real to our hearts. And that's why Psalm 73 is the perfect place to dive into the psalm book. Because the, Psalm 73, more than any other psalm that I can think of, is a psalm about encounter. This is a psalm that recounts a journey of a believer who, at the beginning of this psalm, is a complete emotional and spiritual wreck but who at the end of the psalm has broken out in praise. And the reason for that is because of the turning point of this psalm. 
The turning point is exactly the kind of encounter that I believe the Psalms invite us to have every time we come to them. And so I'm going to look at this Psalm, Psalm 73, and I want to see exactly what this encounter is and, and what it means for us and for the author of this Psalm. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read this Psalm out loud for you, and then we're going to look at it under three headings. So, if you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. and their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terror. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved, and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Okay, so let's look at this psalm under three headings, and they all start with D. First of all, there's a dilemma in this psalm, which we'll see in just a minute. Second of all, there's a deliberation. And thirdly, there's a discovery. So we have a, dis a dilemma, a deliberation, and a discovery. Starting out here with the dilemma. This is verses 1 through 12. This is a psalm that's a journey, okay? It's a, it's a journey of a believer who begins in a spiritual crisis, and yet by the end of the psalm has made a discovery that overflows into praise. Now the dilemma we can see based on who wrote it. It's clear here that the author of this psalm was a believer, but look at verse 2. In verse 2... He tells you that he is a man who almost slipped. In other words, he's a believer having a crisis of faith. 
And this is a big crisis of faith, by the way, because the guy who wrote it is none other than a guy called Asaph. That's found in verse 1. And Asaph, if you go back to the book of First Chronicles, in chapter 16, you find out, is the worship leader for all Israel. His job was specifically to stand before the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence dwelt, and, and to worship, and to lead the rest of Israel in worship. And so the irony of this psalm is that at the beginning of this psalm, Asaph is doing neither of these things. He's neither a worshiper himself, and he's not leading anyone else into worship. Instead, he's in what you might call a dark night of the soul. Now, why is this? If you look a little bit more closely, he tells you. In verse 3, Asaph explains what his problem is. He says, his problem is that I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So in other words, the reason that Asaph is stuck in a rut is because of envy. And specifically, he tells us, it's envy at the prosperity of the wicked, of the bad guys. He's looking around and he's seeing that there are all kinds of people around him who, who are not living for God, who potentially are even blasphemers and who, who are living in a way that he knows is wrong. But he sees that these guys are actually more well-off than he is. And he's beginning to wonder, is there anything that actually counts in, in following God? Am I, what's the point of all of this? And so in verses 4 through 12, he, he elaborates. He, he looks around and he explains what it is that he sees that the wicked have that he doesn't have, with the result being envy. So in verse 4, he notices that the wicked are healthy. In verse 12, he notices that they're wealthy. In verse 10, that they're popular. In verse 5, that they live totally unburdened lives. And then, in some other verses, he notices just how nasty and undeserving these people actually are. So in verse 6, he takes note of the fact that they're proud and violent people. He takes note of the fact in verse 8 that they're scoffers, they're malicious, they're oppressive. And then in verse 11, he notes that these guys are blaspheming. They maybe even are blaspheming God himself. And so to sum it all up, in verse 12, he says, Here's what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Now what this goes to show is that Asaph is a victim here, or at least he sees himself as a victim here, of not just envy, but injustice. You know, if you've ever had someone uh, you know, that, that uh, has pulled you over, you might have wondered, like, why did I get pulled over when all the other cars are going as fast as me? It feels like there was some kind of, some kind of injustice. Injustice stings. And, and, and yet, Asaph says that, that more than just the matter of injustice, it's the envy here that really, really gets him. And if you step back, I think you can imagine why. You know, when, when envy comes along... You know, a lot of times the question can become, well, well, why did he or she get this and I didn't? You know, so for example, you know, maybe you've had it happen that like someone else that you work with gets a raise and you felt like they didn't deserve it and that you should have gotten the raise as well. You know, why did they get a raise and, 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 and I didn't? You know, why did they find a spouse and are now happily married and, and I haven't? You know, or why was school so easy for him and it was so hard for me? On the one hand, it can be easy to kind of ponder those kinds of questions and to get worked up into frustration. Or, on the other hand, it can also be easy to get worked up with a sense of failure. That, that maybe the reason that you didn't get it was because of failure or incompetence or being inferior. And it gets even worse sometimes if you're a believer. Because then it's easy to take God into it. And the question becomes 
a question of whether or not God is good. Because think about it. Now the question becomes this. You know, why didn't God give me a raise? Why didn't God give me a spouse? Why didn't God, why didn't God make school easier for me? You know, it, when Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, was talking about this thorn in his flesh that he had. He, did, he doesn't tell us what it is. He just says that there was some kind of struggle that he had, that he, he tried to pray away but could, would, wouldn't, wouldn't leave him. And it's very interesting that he calls the thorn a messenger from Satan. And what, what he is getting at there is that every thorn has a message behind it. It's more than just some sort of trial. There, there's a message that's attached to it. And I think in this case, the message oftentimes is that God is holding out on me. You know, Asaph is looking around, and he's seeing all the things that the wicked have that he doesn't have. And I, and I would find it very easy to, to put myself in his position and to be thinking, you know, what, is God holding out on me? Is he truly for me? Why has he given all of the wicked these things? And here I am feeding on the scraps. Satan's most devious tactics are always an attempt to question the goodness and the character of God. This is why Asaph's trial, his dark night of the soul, is so dark. Because it gets at who God is. And in fact, this is the very arrow that, that Satan shot at Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. When Jesus goes off to be tempted in the desert, he's just come from his baptism, where he has heard the Father speak over him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when Satan tempts him, this is the very thing that Satan tries to attack. He says, Jesus... If you are truly God's son, if he really loves you, then don't you think he'll give you the power to turn these stones into bread? Or Jesus, if you're really God's son, if he really loves you, then surely he would catch you if you threw yourself off the temple. This is why someone writing on Psalm 73 and this whole, this whole problem of envy that Asaph is experiencing has written this. Nothing is so blinding as envy or grievance. This was the nerve the certain serpent touched in Eden to make even paradise appear an insult. So at the heart of Asaph's dilemma in Psalm 73 is the sense not just that justice has let him down, but that God has let him down. And that's why it cuts so deep. This is why it's a crisis of faith. Now I just want to pause here. And, and observe what's so cool about this. It's so cool to observe where Asaph starts in this psalm. Because, you know, as you heard when we got to the end of it, when we read it, he does not end there. And it goes to show that like, God can take anyone in any spiritual state, and he can work a masterpiece. So, so wherever you are, whatever the state of your faith feels like right now, just be encouraged that God is able to take a guy who's as down in the dumps as Asaph, and, and turn him into an incredible, living, breathing masterpiece of faith. So that's the first part of the psalm. It's the dilemma. Let's move on now here to the second part, which is in verses 13 through 17. There's now a deliberation that Asaph conducts with himself here. By this point in the psalm, you know, he's walking into this cloud of confusion. And in the next couple of verses, this is where he gives full vent to the confusion that he's experiencing. 
by pouring out the griefs of his heart because of how deep this crisis of faith goes. Which is why I would call this middle section the deliberation section. And if you want a summary of what this section is about, you could summarize it like this. This section is showing that you can't figure it out on your own. You can't figure it out on your own. No matter what the issue is, no matter what the trial is. The way that we see this is through some different failed attempts that Asaph makes in these verses to try to dig himself out of the pit. First of all, in verse 13, there's the failed attempt of moralism. So in verse 13, Asaph says, I've kept my heart pure. I've, I've washed my hands in innocence. But point being, there hasn't been like, any, any fruit. There's been no, no results. And what this, what this gets at is that it seems as though Asaph had a strategy in coming to God. He said to himself, if I just keep it together morally, you know, if, if I just keep my heart pure, if I do all the right things, well, then maybe God will be satisfied enough with me that he'll change his mind and he'll bless me like he's blessing these pagan people. Now, now notice the strategy here. This is the strategy of, of treating God as a vending machine. And, and, and it's a strategy, in addition, of trying to impress God. It's like, you know, sort of being a spiritual peacock. of trying to stick up all of your moral feathers and say, look at me, God. Don't you see how good I am? Don't, now you have to bless me. You have to, to bless me because of all the things that I've done for you. You can see in this strategy of moralism, that you're not really out to get God. You're trying to get God's things. And what Asaph concludes here is that this strategy of moralism utterly fails. He says in verse 13 that it's all in vain. That I can't get leverage over God through my moral performance. So the first strategy of moralism fails. But then in verse 14, he looks to another strategy. This time the strategy of time. You know, human beings are, are pretty fickle, you know? Like, you can wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and you can find yourself in a rut. And sometimes all it takes is just a good night's sleep to, to get yourself out of it. And this, for example, is uh, the, one of the lessons that Elijah the prophet learned. If you remember, there's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah is feeling pretty down in the dumps. And so what God does is he puts Elijah to sleep. He sends an angel to make him some food. And Elijah wakes up the next morning. He eats some food. He gets some strength, and he goes on his way. Now sometimes, I, I think this is something that, uh, that uh, Christians ought to remember because we try to spiritualize everything. And every time we get into some kind of problem, you know, our response is, well, have you been praying enough? Have you been reading your Bible enough? Sometimes you just need a good night's sleep and a full stomach and you feel better. In this case for Asaph, though, not so much. In verse 14, look at what he says. Asaph says, I've tried that. He says, I, I've been punished every morning. So in other words, the days are going by here, and I'm still stuck in the rut. You know, I, it doesn't matter how much time goes by, time is not healing this wound. So moralism has failed. Time has failed. Now in verse 15, he tries to look to human beings to solve his problem. Now what he does here is he considers venting all of his griefs to his congregation. Now, Asaph is a worship leader. That means he's, he's like a pastor. He's got a congregation of people that he probably is caring for. And he thinks to himself, you know, man, wouldn't it be nice if I had like a steam valve to just let, out, let off my steam and just vent to some people? 
And you know, if he were living in the 21st century, the equivalent of this would probably be to like go onto Facebook and, and, to, and to you know make some big long post complaining about all of the, the trials and persecutions he's going through. But now notice here, Asaph stops himself and he doesn't actually go through with it. What he says is he, he realizes that he is a leader. He's in a position of authority. And he recognizes that, that there's kind of a wisdom issue in play here. That if he were to just let loose with his spiritual struggles indiscretionately, that it would harm the faith of his flock. Now he's not necessarily saying here that leaders shouldn't be vulnerable. And they, don't, you know, they shouldn't have people in their lives that they can vent to. But what he's recognizing is that there are times where sometimes for a leader to just indulge in, in, in vulnerability would constitute a betrayal of the flock under his care. He recognizes that, man, if my faith is undermined, if I just go and vent all of this to my congregation, you know, that might feel really good for me, but it might actually kind of upset their faith a little bit. And so what Asaph realizes is that he, he's not going to use the people under his care as a balm for his pain. He's not going to abuse them in that way. Instead, he realizes that that solution is not going to work. And by the way, there's an interesting lesson in this. Sometimes it can be really easy to try to turn to other human beings to solve whatever problem you're in. And, and sometimes to wind up actually uh, you know, doing things that, that are maybe not most loving to those around you. One commentator says about Asaph that his first step to enlightenment was not mental but moral. It was a turning from the self-interest and from the self-pity, revealed in verses 3 and 13, to remembering basic responsibilities and loyalties. So he's not realizing that vulnerability is bad, it's good. But he's realizing that there, there can be such a thing as the right place at the right time, and this clearly is not it. And so human beings have failed him. Finally, there's one last attempt in verse 16. His final attempt to get out of his dark night of the soul is to lean on his own understanding. He says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, you know, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to fit the heavens into my head. I was trying to make sense of what God could be up to, you know, just what he's thinking and trying to bless all of these wicked people and hanging me out to dry. And he says, I, I couldn't figure it out. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. In other words, he's saying, I just don't get it. So his deliberations fail. He's looked to moralism. He's looked to time. He's looked to other human beings. And he's looked to his own understanding. And every single one of those things have let him down. But the psalm isn't over yet. Because the last part of this outline that I want to look at today is this discovery that we find in verses 18 through 28. So everything has failed him so far, but there's one last thing that Asaph tries, and this is what leads him to his great discovery. In verse 17, Asaph says that he goes into the sanctuary of God. Now this would have been wherever the place that God's presence dwelled. You know, I don't know for sure that the temple would have yet been built in Asaph's day, but there was still an Ark of the Covenant. Back in the Old Testament, God's presence would come in sort of a localized place, and that's eventually why the temple was built, to give a home for that presence to dwell in. And so when Asaph tells us that he goes into the sanctuary of God, what he means 
is that he, he, he gets into God's presence. And for us, like the, the, the modern equivalent of that would, would potentially be uh, going into a time of worship. Or perhaps even more uh, to the point, going into, going into a space of prayer. A space of coming before God in prayer and encountering him for who he is. And what Asaph says is that when he approaches God in this way, it completely changes everything for him. And in God's presence, he discovers two things. First of all, Asaph discovers something about the wicked. And in verses 18 through 20, he gives us what his little epiphany is. He says in verses 18 through 20 that he realizes in God's presence that there will be a final judgment. That the wicked will at last be brought to justice. And he realizes that he had been leaning too much on the folly of his own understanding. He realizes that his perspective was too small and limited to see the big picture. And he now recognizes that in God's big picture, there is a day when the wicked will finally get their just desserts. He moves away from his own understanding to get God's understanding. He moves away from his own perspective to see God in a fresh light. And that's why one of the verses in this psalm, uh, after these, is actually a, a sort of a verse of repentance. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He recognizes, man, I had the wrong end of the stick. He had forgotten God's perspective. So the first epiphany here is something that Asaph learns about the wicked. But the second thing, the second epiphany, is something that Asaph learns about God. This is the heart of this psalm. And it's perhaps one of the most magnificent reflections in all of the Bible on what it is to have our personal relationship with God. And so I want to read these verses again, verses 23 through 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at the amazing transformation that Asaph has gone through. Because at the beginning of this psalm, he started out as a man who treasured the things that those without God but by the end of this psalm, he's become a man who desires God as his only treasure. He's come to see that better is one hour spent in, the, in God's presence than anything else that all of this world could have to offer. His view of God has profoundly been changed. And what's remarkable about this is that nothing has changed in Asaph's outward circumstances. I mean, the, the, the people who had inspired his envy, are still in the same position that they were before. They're still healthy. They're still strong. You know, they, they still are oppressive. They're still scoffers. And, and Asaph, he still is in the same position that he was. I mean, he's not any healthier or wealthier than, than he was at the beginning of this psalm. That's not usually the way that worship works. You know, usually worship... It is in response to something good that God has done, you know, like, God healed this person that I was praying for, or God answered this other prayer, or, or God saved this family friend or, or relative. Usually worship is, is what we do afterward, of thanking God for, for something he's done in our lives. 
And, and, and in that case, worship essentially becomes a kind of after party. But the strangeness of this psalm is that Asaph is worshiping God without God having given him anything. And the scripture is filled with instances like this. Let, let me read you just one as an example from the book of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. If you think about the, the, the mental, theological math that's happening here, I mean, surely it can't be that this kind of worship comes in response to circumstances. Because clearly Asaph's circumstances haven't changed. Clearly Habakkuk's circumstances hadn't changed. The only logical explanation for how someone like Asaph could come to this place of worshiping God, even in spite of nothing around him having changed, is if he's begun to worship God for who God is in himself. Asaph says that there's no change in, in, in the, the circumstances around him. He still has no justice. He, you know, he says that, that his flesh may fail. He says his heart may fail. But he says that God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. Now this word portion, this is an inheritance word. When God assigned land to the Israelites, when they came into the promised land, he gave each of the tribes their portion, their portion of the land that they would inherit. And that portion that they had would have been the most valuable thing that they owned. But when Asaph says here that, that God has become his portion, what he's saying is that out of all the things that I could have had in this world, out of all the things that this world could have offered me, the thing that I want, the thing that I would have chosen to be my portion, is God himself. That's what Asaph says God means to him. At the beginning of this psalm, Asaph, a, he's, a, he's a thing worshiper. He's worshiping stuff. And at the end of this psalm, he's become a God worshiper. He recognizes that if you are putting your trust in things, if you're looking for things for your satisfaction, ultimately those things are going to let you down. There's no way those things can fill the God-shaped vacuum that's in every single human heart. And he recognizes that, that God's presence is so much more, so much more powerful, so much more satisfying than anything else that this world has on offer. I want to close now by taking all of what we've looked at and relating it back to prayer. Why start with a psalm like this? for a series on prayer. The reason that this psalm is, is just the perfect way to begin is that one encounter with God changes everything for Asaph. It changes everything for him. And the kind of encounter that Asaph has is what prayer is meant to be. I mean, imagine if the vision that we had of prayer switched from just being another box that we tick off to what he experiences here. Where he discovers that, man, 
Getting to spend time in God's presence. It just changes everything. I mean, why would we want it any other way if it really is true that, that God has laid down his life for us so that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe? I mean, wouldn't you want to know this God? Wouldn't he be the, the, the kind of being, the kind of God that, that you, you would be curious about, that you would want to, to get to know, that you would, you, you would want to be in his presence? This is what prayer is meant to be. This is what prayer is meant to be. And this is the kind of prayer that the Psalms are all about. The Psalms are a, an incredible treasure chest that, that walk through every single attribute of God, every single kind of human emotion, and it connects the dots between the two. Which is why, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to journey through them. And, and just as we close here, I want to share a little bit more of, of what I hope this series will be in the weeks ahead. In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some different psalms. You know, there are many different kinds. There are psalms of lament, psalms of worship, psalms of thanksgiving. But each one is going to have something to teach about what it looks like to encounter God and for prayer to be this relational space between God and us. And instead of simply talking about it, I hope, that we, I hope that we do it. I hope that we practice it. And so to that end, the Psalms can, can be the, the very first tool to, to help us with that. Over the next couple of weeks, I would, I would really encourage you to maybe experiment in prayer in a way that you haven't before. To take some of these Psalms and to begin to pray them. And, and what that can look like um, is, is maybe read through a Psalm. Maybe read through one or two Psalms, just you know, depending on, on how much time you have. And, and instead of just reading, instead of just allowing the words to kind of go in one ear and out the other, read at a pace that, that allows you to really chew and meditate on what each word, what each line is saying. And maybe if there's one line that really arrests you, stops you in your tracks, you know, don't even feel the need to continue to the end. Just stay there and dwell and meditate on, on, the, on whatever part of that, that psalm that God highlights to you. And turn that into a prayer. You know, t take whatever that thing is and, and, and speak back to God why that, like, fills your heart with awe. Speak back to God, like, what your response is to his revealed character. Take the Psalms, take the language of the Psalms, and turn those into the language of prayer. And I think what you'll find is that, like, as the language of Scripture becomes the language of our own prayers... It opens prayer up into this amazing encounter with God for who he is, rather than God is simply a reflection of who we think he is. In addition, I want to just call your attention back to the podcast. And if you're looking for some devotional thoughts on some different psalms to kind of stir the pot as, as you look at the psalms on, on a regular basis for your own prayers then the podcast is a great way to do that. So just jump on there and take a couple minutes each day just to listen to some reflections on the Psalms and then consider trying, maybe even on a daily basis, to pray those Psalms. That's something that uh, we'll do over the next couple of weeks as we take a look at this wonderful book called The Psalm Book. So with that, let me pray for us. If you're not on Zoom already, I would encourage you to jump back on Zoom right now so that we can head to small groups. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to move now um, to our small groups. Heavenly Father, I cry out right now to you and ask that 
you would help us to have prayer be a place where we encounter you, where we fall in love with you, and that completely turns our lives upside down in the most awesome and radical way. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can take the things of God and communicate them to us. Give us a hunger to meet you in prayer. Help prayer be a relational space where we encounter you. And would you become real to us over these next few weeks as we dwell on this subject of prayer. In Jesus' name.